Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that is brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 7, Nehemiah chapter 5. Last week we studied Nehemiah chapter 4. And in it, Nehemiah and the Jews of Judah were faced with violent threats from four local and regional Gentile rulers who did not want the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt or the city itself rehabilitated unless they were given at least partial control of the reconstruction and they shared in ruling over the city. These four potentates represented territories that literally surrounded Judah like prison walls. Now, the threats were that they would attack the Jews in order to disrupt the building project. And when Nehemiah got wind of this escalated threat level, he prayed to the God of Israel for guidance, And then he organized the people for battle. Nehemiah was a godly man, but he also didn't see strong action or even war against a declared enemy as somehow contradictory to his faith or his trust in Yahweh. I second that notion. It's only in later times long after Gentile church bishops gained control of the movement started by Christ and his Jewish disciples, that passivity became the preferred mode of behavior for Christians. And this passivity can be traced primarily to an out-of-context misinterpretation and misapplication of Paul's famous instructions on spiritual warfare using military terms and, and metaphors, which we find in Ephesians 6. The result was church leaders deciding that the only permitted action of a believer against a threat or attack was prayer. And in time, this passivity extended to almost every area of a Christian's life when faced with a challenge. Instead of pray, prepare, and stand, as encouraged by Paul, it evolved into pray, sit, and wait for God to solve the problem. Our walk with God was, is, and shall always be a cooperative venture. Action in the face of challenge is not an option. It's our duty. And as it turned out, intimidation from the four Gentile rulers, that wasn't the only challenge facing Nehemiah. It seems that the Jewish workers were losing their enthusiasm for the rebuilding project. Through exhaustion from toting those heavy loads of removing thousands of tons of rubble, basket by basket. From hoisting heavy stones back into place by hand along thousands of feet of destroyed walls. 
And because the laborers' families regularly pled with them to come back to their farms and orchards and, and vineyards so they could grow food to survive and to tend flocks and uh, to, to tend to, to protect flocks and herds, the Jews of Judah were starting to feel deflated and defeated. Nehemiah had to devise a plan to protect the Jews from those enemies who threatened them with attack and at the same time keep those workers from abandoning the project. His solution was to organize the Jews into a battle unit and to bring them together at one place so that they could recognize there was unity and power and Uh, that in unity there was power and that indeed there was a well thought out plan of defense in place that utilized both professional soldiers and workers as a militia. There were watchmen placed in strategic locations along the partially completed wall so that a surprise attack was all but impossible. There was an alarm system devised. But to deal with the issue a possible desertion. Nehemiah ordered that all workers were to spend their nights in the city behind these rapidly ascending new walls and not to go home. Not at all. Even overnight. Further, the people would take turns as watchmen assuring there were enough participants available for a 24-hour, 7-day-per-week watch. These measures seemed to alleviate the immediate concern. But as we begin chapter 5 now, a whole new set of problems is brought to light. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1135. Nehemiah chapter 5. Then there arose a great outcry from the common people and their wives against their brothers, the wealthier Judeans. And some of them said, Counting our sons and daughters, there's a lot of us. Allow us to get grain for them so that we can eat and stay alive. There were also some who said, We're mortgaging our fields and vineyards and homes in order to buy grain because of the famine. Yet others said, we've borrowed money for the king's taxes against our fields and vineyards. Now our flesh is no different from the flesh of our kinsmen. Our children are the same as their children. Yet we are bringing our sons and daughters into bondage as slaves. Some of our daughters have gone into slavery already and it's beyond our power to do anything about it because other men have our fields and vineyards. And when I heard their outcry and the reasons for it, I became very angry. I thought the matter over. I took issue with the nobles and the rulers and I charged them. You're lending against pledges, everyone to his brother. And I summoned a great assembly to deal with them. And I said to them, We, to the limit of our ability, have redeemed our brothers the Judeans who sold themselves to the pagans. But now you, you're selling your own brothers and we have to buy them back. They stayed silent. They couldn't think of anything to say. I also said, What you're doing is not good. You should be living in fear of our God so that our pagan enemies won't have grounds for deriding us. Moreover, my brothers and my servants, I too have loaned them money and grain. Please, 
let's stop making it so burdensome to go into debt. Please, today, give them back their fields and vineyards and olive groves and homes, also the hundred pieces of silver and the grain, wine, and olive oil you demand from them as interest. They answered, we will give it back. We will require nothing from them. Yes, we will do it just as you say. Then I called the Kohanim, the priests, and took an oath from them that they would do as they promised. And shaking out the fold in my garment, I said, May God thus shake every man from his house and from his work who fails to live up to this promise. May he be shaken out like this and made empty. The whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised Adonai and the people did as they had promised. Besides that, from the time I was appointed their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of Artaxasta, the king, that is for 12 years, neither I nor my colleagues drew on the governor's living allowance. The earlier governors before me, they had burdened the people, taxing them more than one and a half pounds of silver shekels for food and wine, and even the servants lorded it over the people. But I didn't, because I feared God. Moreover, I put all my energy into working on this wall. We didn't buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. There were 150 leaders and other Judeans who ate at my table, besides those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Every day, one ox, six choice sheep, six choice sheep and fowl were prepared for me, and every ten days a supply of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of all this, I never claimed the governor's allowance, because the people were already bearing the heavy burden of their labor. My God, remember favorably everything I've done for this people. In times of stress, underlying societal problems that until now had gone unnoticed by the leadership can just suddenly erupt. And what we find in this chapter is that a simmering issue of fundamental fairness has emerged. And it is near to tearing the Jewish community of Judah apart. The issue is a huge gap in personal wealth and income between the aristocratic Jews and the common Jews. Except for momentary lapses, all throughout history and almost all cultures, the issue of wealth distribution has been problematic and has also been the nearly universal cause for riots, rebellions, and civil wars. The 21st century of our day is awash in exactly this conundrum, generally present in every nation on our planet where such a thing as an economy exists. And you know, America is currently ground zero in this regard. What we just read is about Nehemiah using all his leadership skills as well as a good dose of humility and wisdom to deal with this potentially explosive civil unrest. Verse 1 jumps right to the point. The problem facing Nehemiah is one of Jew against Jew. It was serious. And so even the role of the women is included. And this is a rarity. 
especially in the Old Testament, where wives are usually relegated, uh, relegated to the background in such matters. But since the issue was poverty, then it is the wives and mothers who are the most vulnerable. So they lose their fear of protest in a man's world when it comes to the survival of their children. There are two main factors that have led to this outcry from the common Jewish citizens. First is that Nehemiah's forceful insistence upon the people that they focus all their time and energy to rebuilding the city's walls left such matters as food growing and subsistence as nearly impossible. Second was that then as now, trade either with or through their immediate neighbors was a must. And there is no doubt that the four hostile leaders of the territories surrounding Judah had set up an embargo to try and strangle the Jewish economy. So there would be no food available for import. And the Jewish farmers had been conscripted by Nehemiah to build the walls. So growing food locally was necessarily left to the women and to the children. Now I'm going to interject at this point what I mentioned last week. Reading Nehemiah is like reading today's edition of the Jerusalem Post. It is chilling to see essentially the same things happening in the same places by the same people 2,500 years later. Israel's enemies have used the power of public, re, uh, public relations and the United Nations to create a growing economic embargo upon the Israeli economy in order to try to force Israel to cede some control over their land to their enemies. The two Palestinian factions of the West Bank and Gaza and to share Jerusalem. This is precisely what we see happening here in Nehemiah, is it not? To a T. The embargo is, of course, not called by that label, by the national and international press today. Rather, it goes by the innocuous name BDS. Boycott, divest, sanction. Various groups from Europe to South America, Canada, Australia, and the United States are now officially boycotting the purchase of Israeli-made goods and services. They're selling off assets and investments situated in Israel. They are pushing for worldwide political sanctions against Israel in order to punish them and isolate them. These efforts are led by universities, colleges, labor unions, teachers' organizations, professional trade guilds, pension funds, and in the case of the EU, the European Union, boycotting Israel, uh, Israeli-made products and services has become official policy. Now, while this is typically spun as merely a political action against Israel, and it's for the Palestinians, in reality, this is just another form of thinly veiled anti-Semitism. And lest we ever forget, boycotts and sanctions are precisely 
how the reign of terror against the Jews began in Germany leading up to World War II. Boycotting Jewish shops, firing Jewish laborers, and the government putting up special sanctions against Jewish-held banks and companies was billed as but a justifiable and peaceful means of social protest. And it was a political statement against, they thought, too much Jewish influence in Germany. But as history shows, within months of the boycotts, they began assaulting Jews on the streets, burning down their businesses and synagogues, confiscating their wealth came next. With these supposed social and political statements, the stage was set for a concerted effort to murder not just every Jew in Germany, but all of Europe. Hitler and his allies nearly succeeded. And the Gentile populations of the world, including the church, were mostly silent. And in Germany, they were highly complicit. Where are the outcries today from our national leaders? Our Christian leaders? Jewish groups outside of Israel? For this blatant anti-Semitic war on Israel's economy? I mean, the reality is that just as in the lead up to the Holocaust, nobody seems to notice or care. If in the late 1930s this situation was mentioned outside of Germany, it was only whispered. And the usual response was that concern over this was just overblown. Just irrational paranoia. I ask each and every one who is listening to this message to hear me. This is our time, this is your time to stand up and be counted. The Lord is giving us an opportunity to both comfort His people and to take sides. The Jewish victims of the boycotts and slanders are our elder brothers and sisters in the faith. And this is God's chosen people who gave us our Messiah who are being attacked. Pass the word that this is happening. Fight! Do not be silent. Let your political leadership know that you know about it. You also know about their indifference. And that this is not acceptable. And then do the one thing the one thing that just might help the most intentionally purchase Israeli products to help Israeli Jews support their families and break the back of this economic siege against Israel. Now perhaps there are other ways to help the Jewish people directly that your family or your group can think of. I mean, as an example, Seed of Abraham Ministries Torah class is now devoting a substantial part of our budget in order to rapidly expand our inventory of exclusively Israeli-made products. This nonprofit ministry, Holy Land Marketplace, was created just for this purpose. 
However, I think I can confidently say that none of us who began this ministry over a decade ago imagined that such a day would come so soon that the attack on Israel's economy would be so blatant the need would become so great so fast. But you know, leadership can often get distracted by other matters. And that's what's happening with Nehemiah. He is so focused on the task at hand, rebuilding those walls, that he has not heard the grumblings of his people about their dire economic situation, or maybe he just sees it as a lower priority. This is about to change, as apparently the normally discreet women of Jerusalem begin to openly campaign about the social injustice that they and their families are facing. Now if we pay close attention to the verses that uh, we, we see three different groups of people provide three different reasons for their troubles. Now this first group was those who had no land. Perhaps they were craftsmen or folks who had never recovered their land when they returned from exile. After all, not all Jews in that era owned fields and so produced food. I mean, just like in our pre-industrial economy of a century ago in America, a major portion of the population indeed, indeed lived on farms and they, they raised crops and herds. But those who lived in ever-growing cities had other types of skills and so they had to trade money for food that was produced by those farmers. However, for those who lived in the suburbs, it was more common to have a garden, grow some food, but still have to purchase other food items for supplement. So verse 2 represents those who weren't growers of food as their main means of support, and instead, normally, they had to purchase it with money earned from trade crafts or perhaps selling their labor. This group says they have large families and they cannot produce enough food to feed themselves. But the situation has made them even poorer. Now they don't have any means to purchase food. And recall, the trade had been disrupted. So a vital source of food imported from nearby neighbors had been cut off by these four Gentile rulers. Now the second group, which is in verse 3, clearly represents folks who did own land and usually were able to grow enough food for themselves and no doubt some extra to sell. But the bad economy had forced them to mortgage their fields to survive. Borrowing to buy seed or to have food, tie, for, uh, have food to tide them over for, for a short time, maybe during a bad harvest or maybe for the winter, was rather customary. So the reason for this situation being held up as dire can only be they had no means to repay. Now they're in danger of losing their lands or having to sell their children into bond servitude. Then as now, once one has so much debt that repayment is essentially impossible, so one starts selling or losing their assets, then a cycle of poverty sets in, from which escape is unlikely, and one's independence and freedom can become lost for generations. 
Now this third group of verse 4 is somewhat like the second group in that they were landowners and they were growers of food. However, their situation was they were being taxed to death. They didn't need to borrow to replant or to have food for a short time of insufficiency. They had to borrow just to pay their taxes. The taxes they owed are what is better known as royal tribute. Money to fund the kings and other officials' privileged lifestyles. Thus, they were also severely pinched economically. They were in danger of losing their land to the mortgage holder or having to sell their children into slavery. Now, although the identity of those mortgage holders hasn't yet been included in the complaints, the next few verses make it clear. They were the wealthy Jewish community leaders. So in verse 5, a reference to who the three groups were complaining against is posted. They are the same flesh as our brothers, their children like our children. Obviously, they are speaking of fellow Jews aristocratic Jews from their local communities. And the concerns of the people weren't hypothetical. Some of their children were already taken as slaves. In fact, we see an unusual use of a Hebrew term here that gives us pause. See, where in our complete Jewish Bibles it says, some of our daughters have gone into slavery already, it probably needs to read more like some of our daughters have already been submitted. Now, the Hebrew word being translated here as submitted is kabash. And it has the sense of being forced to do something. But it doesn't really indicate slavery. So some scholars think that this means that daughters were given as wives or more likely second wives to some wealthy Jews. In the book of Esther, we see one of the very few uses of this Hebrew word kabash in the Bible and it has sexual overtones to it. Listen to this from Esther 7.8. Haman had just fallen on the couch where Esther was when the king returned from the palace garden to the wine banquet and he shouted, is he even going to rape the queen here in the palace before my very eyes? The moment these words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Here in Esther, that same Hebrew word kibosh is translated to rape. And while that English word wouldn't fit the context of our passage, in Nehemiah, the idea is that a girl would submit sexually to a man. In Hebrew culture, the only acceptable sexual submission is as a wife or a concubine, a second wife. So I agree with scholars that say that this is referring to marrying daughters off, but not as regular wives, but as second wives. And this prospect was deeply unsavory. But it also meant that unlike regular bond servitude, whereby a person was enslaved until that debt was paid off, or until Shemitah, release at the time of Jubilee, this daughter was lost forever because she became permanently joined to another family 
by marriage. Even though in reality this was all purely debt related. Now let's be clear. It was legal, according to the Torah, for Jews to be bond servants. And it was legal to use their land or other assets as collateral on a loan. However, the real purpose of the Torah laws concerning this was to give a poor person a way to survive and then hopefully to recover from their bad financial situation. The laws weren't meant to give the rich a shot at acquiring more land or slaves. So whenever these laws were applied, they were to be applied with fundamental fairness as opposed to leverage to the advantage of the wealthy. And while there are passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy that cover such matters, the most extensive of these is found in Leviticus chapter 25. Now we're not going to read it, but I do want to quote to you some of the verses to remind you of the principles that God is establishing regarding debt, slavery, release and the sale of land, especially as it concerns Hebrews, because it directly applies to the situation we're finding in Nehemiah chapter 5. Leviticus 25.14 If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy anything from him, neither of you is to exploit the other. Leviticus 25.17 Thus you are not to take advantage of each other, but you are to fear your God. For I am Adonai your God. Leviticus 25, verses 23 and 24. The land is not to be sold in perpetuity because the land belongs to me. To me you are only foreigners and temporary residents with me. Therefore when you sell your property you must include the right to redemption. Leviticus 35 to 37. If a member of your people has become poor so that he can't support himself among you, you are to assist him as you would a foreigner or a temporary resident so that he can continue living with you. Do not charge him interest. Do not otherwise profit from him, but fear your God so that your brother can continue living with you. Do not take interest when you loan him money or take a profit when you sell him food. Leviticus 25, 44-46 <clears throat> Concerning the men and women you have as slaves, you are to buy men and women slaves from the nations surrounding you. You may also buy the children of foreigners living with you and members of their families born in your land. You may own these. You may also bequeath them to your children to own. But from these groups, uh, from these groups you may take your slaves forever. But... As far as your brothers, the people of Israel, are concerned, you're not to treat each other harshly. So we can see the underlying principles between how a Jew is to deal with another Jew, or more technically a Hebrew with another Hebrew, as regards loans and debt repayment and interest rates and so on. And according to the complaints of the people of Judah, these principles were not being observed by the wealthy. Rather, they were exploiting this situation to their benefit, but then also to the extreme detriment of the common Jews. Now, Nehemiah realized the seriousness of this situation. 
It was not only that the overall economic condition of Jerusalem and Judah were deteriorating, but that the, the community was in danger of rupturing. His initial reaction was anger. But to what? Anger over what? To the fundamental unfairness? Or was it to the possibility that his entire mission could be undone? I think it's more the latter than the former. Nehemiah was a man of purpose who was not easily detoured in getting from A to B. But in his usual manner, he did not act on impulse. Verse 7 says he thought the matter over. And only afterwards he came to the decision to confront the nobles and the rulers, Jewish nobles and rulers. And to do this, he, he, he called for an assembly of all the people to come. And, 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 and there before them, the case against these wealthy Jews would be tried. Now this indeed was handled as a more or less legal matter. So the people were the witnesses. And the reality is that unless this situation was reversed, or at least greatly mitigated, this entire project would become the failure that all the previous attempts to rebuild the city and its walls were. Now what Nehemiah did was fairly drastic. The aristocratic Jews, whose support he needed, would be put into the humiliating position of being publicly confronted by angry peasants. The problem is that the accused were essentially the elders and judges who presided over legal cases. Thus, the assembly of people would have to become the judges as well as the witnesses. And Nehemiah deserves a lot of credit for the courage to address this matter head on as opposed to just doing what you would typically think, siding with the wealthy and powerful. The main accusation against these aristocrats is stated in very brief summary in verse 7. You are lending pledges, everyone, to his brother. So the central point is, you are displaying fundamental unfairness towards your fellow Jews. But then to soften the blow, he also threw some compliments their way. Diplomatic guy. By pointing out that indeed these same wealthy Jews had redeemed many peasant Jews from the foreign occupiers of Judah. In other words, these rich Jews paid off the debts that the poor Jews had accumulated but were held by pagans. Therefore, some poor Jews that were in bond servitude to foreigners were released to come home to their families as a result of what could only be called charity. On the other hand, says Nehemiah, these rich Jewish benefactors turned right around and put these same poor Jews back into debt, even selling some of them into bond servitude to other Jews. Now to borrow a term from H.G.M. Williamson in his commentary in Nehemiah, this was a moral absurdity. 
Yes, technically the rich Jews were following the letter of the law. It was considered unthinkable that poor Jews would be debt slaves to pagans. And it was the duty of those who could redeem them back to do so. And indeed, the wealthy Jews did that. But it was also technically legal for poor Jews to become debt slaves to fellow Jews. Even so, the spirit of the law was in this situation being trampled down and ignored. And the spirit of the law is well summed up in the Torah. In Leviticus 25.17 Thus you are not to take advantage of each other, but you are to fear your God. For I am Adonai your God. Thus, what under normal circumstances could have been a good and correct legal defense by the wealthy Jews to Nehemiah's accusation that it was entirely different. It was different for them to sell a Jew to a Jew that a Jew to a pagan, all this argument was short-circuited by Nehemiah when he says that either way, it still puts the poor Jews in the same untenable situation and thus it endangers the well-being of the entire Jewish community of Jerusalem. We are told that the wealthy Jews stood silent. It's such sound reasoning. We have to remember that what's happening here in this Jerusalem project is not a commercial enterprise. It is a cause. It's a cause for the advancement of the kingdom of God. It is God's will for Jerusalem to be redeveloped. And if the common Jews if they're willing to stop farming, to leave home and family for a time, to work with one hand on a tool, the other on a a sword for self-defense, and to give of their back-breaking labor to make all this happen, then the rich Jews not only shouldn't profit from it, they should help to make up for what the laborers were sacrificing. So in verse 9, Nehemiah declares the rich Jews guilty as charged. And then he adds a spiritual reason for their guilt. You should be living in the fear of God. No doubt this was referring directly to the Torah and Leviticus 25.17. But then comes a humbling admission. Nehemiah too was guilty. He'd been loaning money and food to the poor. Apparently at usurious interest rates or he'd have no guilt. So, he says, it's time to stop adding to the burden of these selfless workers by putting them further into debt. The debts should be forgiven. Now, there's probably two scenarios intended here. First, that any who had lost their lands and crops and vineyards and orchards due to inability to pay a debt, should have them immediately returned. And second, whatever interest that had been paid for a loan in silver or in food, that too was to be given back. Now, this second scenario is a little bit disputed by scholars primarily to the Hebrew word meah, 
that translates most literally as hundred. Now the complete Jewish Bible says that the interest is 100 pieces of silver. 100 meah. Plus some of the produce. Now other versions say that it means not hundred but hundredth or better one one hundredth. Now I'm not dogmatic about it since we may never know. However, there is much to be said for the one one hundredth interpretation that means an interest rate of one percent to be paid in silver plus some amount of produce. 100 pieces of silver was a substantial sum that seems unattainable for a typical Jewish farmer. Of course, we're also not told if this 1 100th, this 1% is monthly or yearly. Although monthly is probably meant that would give us an imputed interest of 12% per year since 20% per year or one-fifth That was the standard in the Middle East of that era. In any case, any interest at all was determined to be wrong. And in a display of obedience and generosity, the wealthy Jews agreed to return everything and no longer charge interest for loans. I mean, I can just hear the cheers of the people accompanied with tears of joy. I can also easily imagine that the community grew a lot closer together as a result of this. And the wealthy were rewarded with sincere honor and respect. But Nehemiah needed more than a mere declaration to rely upon. So he called the priests to come to administer a vow to the aristocrats, which they apparently accepted. Nehemiah used a symbolic act, much like the prophets of days past would do, as a curse upon the wealthy if they failed to adhere to their vow before God. Before the invention of pockets, a fold and a garment would be used to provide a safe place to to put things. So Nehemiah opened the fold in his garment. He shook it out. And he asked God to do the same for anyone who failed to live up to their vow. The idea being that God would rid himself of these people or that the offenders would lose everything valuable to them. The entire assembly, meaning the rich and the common Jews, together shouted, Amen! Thus each personally voicing agreement to adhere to the terms of the vow. The spirit of what Nehemiah suggested and what the wealthy agreed to after being so callous and so wrong for so long is well expressed in a New Testament verse that we find in 1 John. In 1 John 3, 17 and 18 we hear this. If someone has worldly possessions and sees his brother in need yet he closes his heart against him How can he be loving God? Children, let us love not with words and with talk, but with actions and in reality. 
What we see thus far in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is godliness expressed by actions. Hear God calling you? Respond. See a need? Fill it. See a wrong? Fix it. Recognize sin in your life? Repent. We'll pick up chapter 5 next week.